Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Good Heavens is a podcast that takes a deeper look into the cosmos, revealing God's wondrous power and design. Are they real? Did they really exist, or are they just creatures of folklore and fantasy? In C.S. Lewis's Narnia tale, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the petulant modernist character of Eustace Scrub encounters a live dragon lounging languidly in his lair atop an enormous pile of treasure. But Eustace had no idea what lay before him. You see, Scrub enjoyed books of information, which, quote, had a lot to say about exports and imports and governments and drains, but they were weak on dragons, end quote. Eustace, we are told, read none of the right books. Had he done so, he would have avoided the unfortunate fate which awaited him. Quote, he had turned into a dragon while he was asleep. Sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. He realized he was a monster cut off from the whole human race." End quote. In Greek mythology, the multi-headed multilingual dragon Laden was placed in the Garden of Hera wife of Zeus, in order to guard the golden apples given to her by Gaia, the Mother Earth, as a wedding present. The eleventh labor of the strong man Heracles, or Hercules for the Romans, included the impossible task of having to take some of the golden apples from Hera's garden. In order to do so, he would first have to slay the dragon Laden. Legends say he shot an arrow over the garden wall and fatally wounded the serpentine guardian. Then there is the 14th century tale of St. George, the knight from Cappadocia, who rescues a princess from the clutches of a menacing dragon, slays the dragon, refuses the king's reward, and as a result, 15,000 men are baptized. You may be also familiar with the epic 7th century poem of the mighty warrior Beowulf, who slays the monster Grendel with his bare hands. But Beowulf also faces a ferocious dragon. Like Eustace's dragon, Beowulf's dragon also sits atop a hoard of treasure. Upon approaching the beast's lair, the strong man cries out aloud for the dragon to come forth. As J.R.R. Tolkien's English translation reads, quote, the guardian of the horde perceived the voice of a man. No longer was there space for the suing of peace. Forth came first the blast of the fierce destroyer from out of the rock, hot vapor threatening battle. 
the earth rang. The Lord of the Geats beneath the mound flung round his warrior shield to meet the dreadful comer. End quote. If you have not yet read this epic battle, you should. It is indeed epic. And you'll probably recognize a little bit of it rewritten into Tolkien's The Hobbit. And then, of course, there are a number of allusions to a dragon in the Bible. What exactly are we to make of this? Was there ever such thing as a dragon, or is the Bible merely using figurative language? Quote, Woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. End quote. That comes from Revelation 12:12 12, 12, and Revelation 20 verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 27:1 reads, quote, "In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea." And in the 41st chapter of the book of Job, we have a detailed description of something like a dragon, complete with scales, ferocious teeth, and fiery breath. The word Leviathan that is used in this chapter is a transliteration of the Hebrew, for there really is no English equivalent for the word Leviathan, though some have suggested it might be a crocodile. But I personally have never heard of, nor have I ever seen, a crocodile that breathes fire and has smoke emanating from its nostrils. Leviathan is a formidable creature, whatever it may be. The Lord says to Job that fishing spears and harpoons cannot penetrate his scales, that no one can strip off his armor or open the doors of his face. Quote, Around his teeth there is terror. His strong scales are his pride shut up as with a tight seal. His sneezes flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goes forth from his mouth. Nothing on earth is like him." End quote. The Lord asks Job if this Leviathan will, quote, make many supplications to you, or will he speak to you soft words, end quote. What you just heard is one of the loudest and most mysterious sounds ever recorded. Captured in 2014, the otherworldly utterance is believed to have emanated from the deepest part of the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean. This trench runs just south of Japan and ends just north of Australia. To this day, no one really knows what the source of the sound might be. Of course, I am not saying with any degree of certainty that such an eerie sound is the dragon making supplications to God. But the earth-ringing voice from the depths certainly reminded me of what God says to Job about Leviathan and what Isaiah says of Leviathan inhabiting the seas. 
But I do personally believe that the description God provides to Job is far too detailed to merely have been a metaphor for diabolical machinations, given it was Satan who we see at the beginning of Job's narrative. And it is just my own uninformed opinion that it was this very Leviathan who swallowed Jonah alive. In the 40th verse of the 12th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus calls the creature a katos, or sea monster. Of course, neither the book of Jonah nor Jesus say specifically that it was Leviathan who swallowed Jonah. But given other descriptions of the devil, dragon, serpent in the New Testament about who wants to devour us, it seems at least probable. Paul, for example, instructs the Corinthian church that a disobedient church member be, quote, handed over to Satan, end quote. See 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that we are to, quote, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, end quote. Peter knew what it was like to have been specifically sifted by Satan, just as Job had been. Verses 3 and 4 of Revelation chapter 12 proclaim, quote, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. End quote. The dragon has been thrown down. There no longer being any place in God's heaven for him or for those angels who rebelled. The devil is furious, enraged with the mother of Jesus, and makes war with those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. See Revelation 12:17. We are at war. As C.S. Lewis put it, using a World War II analogy, we exist in, quote, enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say, landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. That is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. He does it by playing on our conceit and laziness and intellectual snobbery, end quote. And the Bible tells us to, quote, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, end quote. That comes from Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. But to modern unbelieving ears, this all rings of superstitious nonsense. As C.S. Lewis further observed, quote, I know someone will ask me, do you really mean at this time of day to reintroduce our old friend the devil, hooves and horns and all? Well, what the time of day has to do with it, I do not know. I am not particular about the hoofs and horns, but in other respects, my answer is yes, I do. I do not claim to know anything about his personal appearance. If anybody really wants to know him better, I would say to that person, don't worry. 
If you really want to, you will. Whether you'll like it when you do is another question. End quote. These quotes from Lewis come from the end of chapter 2 in Mere Christianity. Though the devil is indeed our enemy who seeks to rob, steal, devour, and kill, the devil is a defeated foe. He possesses no power or ability anywhere equal to that of God. As Lewis noted, he is a rebel, not God's equal. He is under the sovereign dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ and must be granted permission from Jesus to do anything. He may rage against God's elect, but there is nothing he can do apart from what God permits. Whether it's Paul's messenger of Satan or whether it's a legion of messengers, the devil and the demons are under God's sovereign control. Recall the short story in the book of Numbers of the Israelites complaining to Moses about their circumstances. In verse 6 of chapter 21, we read that, quote, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. End quote. The remaining Israelites confessed their sin of complaining and asked Moses to intercede, which he did. The Lord then directed Moses to craft a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole, that all those who might look upon it would be saved from their venomous wounds. Unfortunately, the Israelites later turned the bronze serpent into an idol, even giving it the name of Nehushtan, and made offerings to it. It was King Hezekiah who finally destroyed it, see 2 Kings 18.4. It seems reasonable to assume, though the connections are not entirely clear, that there is some connection between the biblical narrative of the fiery serpents and the widely popular Grecian cult of Asclepius, a god who used snakes as a primary means of healing. The fiery serpent event of Numbers occurred sometime in the 15th century BC, while the cult of Asclepius flourished a thousand years later. The symbol of a star with a serpent wrapped around a pole in the center is the present-day universal symbol of emergency medical care. In other ancient Greek legends, the Olympian gods warred with the Titans, and among the Titans was the Great Dragon. Unlike the biblical account of the dragon being thrown down to earth, Minerva, the goddess of wisdom, allegedly took the dragon by the tail and flung it into the heavens, where it eventually froze into position above the Arctic, around the pole star Polaris. The dragon laden of the Garden of Hesperides and the Titan dragon have been associated with the constellation of Draco the dragon. Draco is listed in Ptolemy's 2nd century catalogue of the heavens called the Almagest, 
lending credence to the belief that the constellation was known as a dragon prior to the Greeks. The 3rd century Greek poet Eratus, in his poem Phenomena, the very poem quoted by the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, mentions Draco the dragon. Quote, Through the two bears, the breathtaking dragon meanders like a river, snaking at great length far and wide. End quote. Draco is a circumpolar constellation, which means it rotates around the pole star Polaris and is visible year-round in the northern hemisphere. If you have a telescope, there are a few celestial treasures to see within the constellation. You can catch a glimpse of the Cat's Eye Nebula, the Spindle Nebula, and the enigmatically shaped Tadpole Galaxy. Of the 88 official constellations, Draco ranks 8th in terms of its 1,083 square degrees of sky. Think of a constellation as a state with borders. Each constellation takes up a certain amount of degrees in the sky. The capital of each constellation state is the main pattern of stars from which the whole constellation state derives its name. But if you live in a larger metropolitan area, the widening gyre of light pollution will likely prevent you from seeing this ancient serpent. Even under relatively good dark skies, it takes a little bit of stargazing skill to see it, as most of the stars that comprise Draco's coiling frame are quite dim. The brightest star of the constellation is Gamma Draconis, or El Tanin, which is an Arabic derivation which means the Great Serpent. El Tanin is actually thought to be a binary star system, with the main star being much more massive than our Sun and over 400 times brighter than our Sun, if you can even begin to imagine that. The third brightest star is directly opposite El Tanin, known as Rastaban. That word comes from the Arabic Ras al Thubain, meaning the head of the serpent. Rastaban is also believed to be a binary star system with its smaller companion star, a bright dwarf. The second brightest star in Draco is within the body of the serpent, and like Rastaban and El Tanin, is also a binary star system. Its name, Aldebane, means the two wolves. In older Arabic astronomy lore, these two wolves are seen as stalking the mother camels, made up of the stars which comprise the dragon's head. The other stars which comprise the dragon's head are Grumium, which means the snout, and Kuma, the meaning of which is uncertain. So Eltanin, Rastaban, and Grumium can be seen as a triangle comprising the head of Draco, kind of like a kite on a kite string, while Kuma is just outside of the triangle between the stars Grumium and Rastaban. I've always personally thought of Kuma as a wart on the snout of the dragon. So is there a real dragon, or is it all just mythology and legend? Given the vivid descriptions we find in the pages of scripture, I'm willing to affirm that at least one dragon still exists, and that dragon is furiously opposed to those who keep the testimony of Jesus. Like the celestial dragon in the heavens, the dragon who is our adversary hides himself behind the alluring glow of our big cities, remaining veiled from our sight while he works his wiles and schemes. But he is a defeated dragon, and we must utilize the full armor of God to keep ourselves protected from his devouring schemes. From the Titan dragon to Laden of the Hesperides to Beowulf's nemesis to St. George, the dragon is always inevitably defeated. 
And there is one constellation which is poised directly above the triangular head of the serpent that can remind us of the serpent's inevitable demise. It was known in ancient times as the Kneeler. Resting on one knee with the other foot positioned right above the head of Draco, this legendary figure appears to be holding a club and seems as though he's about to crush the head of the great dragon. Today, the Kneeler is more commonly known as the Greco-Roman strongman of Hercules. And while I claim no special secret knowledge about what God specifically intended these constellations to mean, aside from declaring his glory, they do nevertheless remind me of the ancient promise from the garden that Christ, the strongman of scripture, will crush the head of the serpent. On the cross, Jesus has already defeated the dragon. Like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too was Jesus lifted up on the cross so that we may be saved from our sin and the destruction and wasting of the devil of old. And Jesus will one day triumphantly return and do away with Satan and his schemes for good. So this Easter season, let us remember the great labors that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. Let us submit to God and resist the devil so that the fleeing serpent and his demons will flee from us. And let us finally not rejoice that we have such power over evil spirits, but rather rejoice that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So let us not be like Eustace. Let us read the right books. Let us know how to be protected from the adversary. Let us hold fast to our confession of Jesus. Let us be not weary in battle or well-doing. Let us pray without ceasing. And let us petition Jesus that by his grace and mercy alone, we will endure to the end. So the next time you're out under dark skies, see if you can trace out the winding stars of Draco and be reminded that the devil is a defeated foe. And remember all the great things the Lord has done for you. Soli Deo Gloria.